body and uh, their parents. So uh, thank you to everybody who helped out with that. Let's all stand to our feet. Two o'clock, Servicio en Español. If you're part of our Spanish church, we will see you here at two. And uh, there's going to be a whole other group of people in here praising the Lord in Español. All right, am I forgetting anything? That's everything. Brother Thaler, come and preach the word to us. We're so glad. Let's give Brother Thaler a great big, amen, round of applause. Amen. Let's give God a hand clap of praise. Lord, we love you, Jesus. God, we thank you for all that you're doing, Jesus. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise God. If you would turn with me to Matthew chapter number 9. I am going to do my best to preach what I feel like God has given me as quickly as possible. But I do feel a message. And I was here praying last night. I was planning on preaching something else. And as I got into prayer, I really felt to preach this message. And so I want to say thank you, Pastor Prado, for trusting me to preach to the congregation. Sister Prado, we love you. And to the church, we love you. Matthew chapter number 9, verse number 14. And the Bible reads, Then came to him the disciples of John, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast oft, but thy, thy disciples fast not? And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them. And then shall they fast. No man putteth a piece of new cloth unto an old garment. For that which is put in to fill it up taketh from the garment. And the rent is made worse. Neither do men put new wine into old bottles. Else the bottles break and the wine runneth out. And the bottles perish. But they, but they put new wine into new bottles and both are preserved. Praise God. If you don't mind putting your Bibles down and praying with me, God, we want to thank you for this opportunity to be in your presence. Lord Jesus, I'm praying that you would use us today. God, I'm praying that you'd anoint me from the top of my head to the soles of my feet. Lord God, let your words come forth from out of my mouth. I'm praying, God, for a move of your spirit, for an outpouring of the Holy Ghost. Lord God, we're trusting in you this morning, believing, God, that your will is going to be done here. Hallelujah. Praise God. If you're going to preach with me, go ahead and be seated this morning. I want to preach to you on this topic. Stretched out, not stretched thin. Stretched out, not stretched thin. The Roman Empire was so great in size and scale, so unique in its arts, politics, architecture, engineering, and powerful in its military prowess that there are historians that have devoted their entire lives and careers to its study. Because of the sheer volume of information, those who study it often choose to focus on just one aspect, whether it be uh, the philosophies or, or whether it be the military or whether it be whatever uh, portion of the military war machine that might be there. They choose certain areas, and a source of much study is the ancient city of Pompeii. 
located near the city of Naples in Italy. Pompeii was one of the many cities and villages in Italy that was covered in volcanic ash and pumice when Mount Vesuvius erupted in 79 AD. This, the city was left mostly covered with the exception of just some tops of the tallest buildings. That is until further eruptions of Vesuvius in the years 47, 471 to 473 and 512 AD covered the remaining portion of the city more deeply. From the late 1500s through to the 1950s, many excavations had taken place. And these excavations gave researchers living millennia after the destruction of the city much information about Roman life. The ash had encapsulated the city, and it gives a glimpse into what everyday life would have been like as a Roman in 79 A.D., out of all the artifacts and buildings that have been studied in Pompeii, something that has been viewed as worthless until just the past few years is the significant amount of Roman graffiti. The graffiti is mostly as you would expect, ranging from childish nonsense to the vulgar and from political to pornographic no matter how far back in history we go or how far into the future we look, the human condition is unchanging. Since Adam and Eve's failure in the Garden of Eden, humanity has been in a downward spiral of sin. And Jesus was, is, and will be the only remedy for sin. Praise God. In Pompeii, one particular wall of a woodworking shop that is directly next to an ancient tavern or bar, recounts a common ancient complaint toward the tavern, tavern keepers. I would that you pay for all your tricks, innkeeper. You sell us water and keep the good wine for yourself, it reads. And as we read in our text, Matthew chapter 9, verse number 15, the disciples of John the Baptist came to Jesus, and the disciples of John heard and responded to the preaching and teaching of John the Baptist. His preaching was intended and directed to the entire generation of Jews. He preached a message of repentance, that the people were to make their ways straight and to prepare the way of the Lord who was soon to come. What is interesting here is that it, the, the disciples received the message and they were baptized under repentance, but somehow they had not made the connection that the message that John preached included the religious elite and the extra biblical ritualistic institution, which was the pharisaical Jewish uh, synagogues. John's disciples were still grouping themselves in with the Pharisees and made a statement that caused the Pharisees to appear as if they were a legitimate alternative to John the Baptist's message. God, however, had different thoughts 
about the Pharisees. And the Lord told the Pharisees on more than one occasion that they were serpents and vipers. He equated them to the, the cursed serpent in the garden that beguiled his prey and struck Eve in her confusion. Jesus told the, the Pharisees that as they proselyte and make disciples of themselves, that by the time they were through, the proselytes were worse off than prior to coming in contact with the Pharisees. You know things are bad when God recognizes that people are better off without the church than with it, with, with it praise God. God's message about ritual and tradition is very clear. When ritual or tradition taint God's original intent, it is not a lesser sin, but it is iniquity, which has a root similar to that of what caused the original sin, what was a slight distortion and adulteration of the truth by adding to God's word. The results of this were outright transgression and to God's commandments. Praise God. In verse 15, Jesus responds to John's disciples. Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bride chamber is with them? The Jews well understood that based on scripture, God is referenced as a groom. We see this in Psalm 45, Isaiah 54 and 62, and in Hosea 2. As far as the Lord was concerned, the disciples were living in a time where mourning for him was unnecessary, which is why there was no need for them to fast at that time. And he was not advocating for fasting to be unnecessary. We know this because he quickly states that the time for them to fast was coming. He then makes his first recorded allusion to his coming rejection. He does this by referencing a wedding ceremony to show that although the disciples were in his physical presence, gaining all the evidentiary experiences to understand that he truly was the Christ or Messiah and God manifest in flesh, that just as weddings are short-lived, so was the season that the disciples were living in. They would soon be tested, tried, and persecuted, most of them unto death and martyrdom. In addition, Jesus takes a shot at the religious world of that day, letting the disciples know that they are coming for me to take me away, strictly based on the fact that I threaten their system from their vocation to their government and to their most closely adhered to religious rituals. He was letting them know they're coming for me. Praise God. Then in verse 16, he says, No man putteth a piece of new cloth unto an old garment. For that which is put in to fill it up taketh from the garment, and the rent or the tear or rip is made worse. The example used here is referring to the fact that in ancient times, if an older, already worn and used piece of clothing was, was torn. You could not repair it with a new piece of cloth. Essentially, the old garment was as good as it was going to get in its damaged form. If you tried to repair it, the old garment, uh, if you tried to repair this old garment by patching it with a new piece of cloth, 
and the garment got wet, the patch with the new cloth would shrink. And the rest of the tear would actually be worse than what it was before. So what Jesus is getting at is that the old could not be repaired or reformed enough to make it function as a new garment. It would always be old. It would always be worn, and it would always be used, regardless of the repairs, the upgrades, and the restoration that had been given to it. It is the age-old idea that if you want different results, you cannot do the same things over and over, but rather something has to dramatically change in order to achieve new goals and get different results. We can't do the same thing and expect something different. At some point, we've got to realize the life that we've been living is no good. And if I want better, I've got to do better. I've got to find better. I've got to be better. Praise God. Praise God. In this illustration, righteousness is likened to a garment. The reason righteousness is likened to a garment is that by design, righteousness covers nakedness and, and the shame of mankind. It is like ornamentation, which is why God has specific guidelines and instruction in our conduct, our dress. And the, as garments are designed to protect us from the elements, God's righteousness has the ability to shield us from the heat, warm us in the winter, and cover us in the storm. Hallelujah. The old garment is man's righteousness that is as old as Adam and Eve and the original sin. It was once a new and good garment, but it has since been worn out and torn and in need of mending. The new, the new garment is likened unto God's righteousness, which only he has, and we can only obtain it in him. Just as the two garments don't mix, the two types of righteousness don't mix. God's righteousness is simply greater and it has more utility, spiritual and eternal functionality and will quite literally cause greater holes in man's righteousness than what was already there. Hallelujah. Which is why God likens our righteousness to filthy rags. It'll never be as good as God's. The reality is that at some point, old garments have to come off. They cannot be patched up to be functionally new. They have to be replaced. We have to make sure that we as the church are focused on our purpose. And we only have one purpose, and that is to make heaven our home. And more specifically, to make it our home and bring as much of this lost and dying world with us. Praise God. Glory to God. Verse 17. Neither do men put new wine into old bottles, else the bottles break and the wine runneth out and the bottles perish, but they put new wine into new bottles and both are preserved. Wine is representative of several things in the Bible, including God's blessing, joy, peace, his transformative power, and comprising all of these things. It is a type of the Holy Ghost. 
In this verse, the King James Version utilizes the word bottles, but many other versions utilize wineskin because what is being referred to here in this verse is not quite what we would consider a modern bottle. These were animal skins, typically a goat skin that would be prepared in order to hold grape juice that was soon to go through the fermentation process. And the verse is relying on common knowledge of the times that when you turn juice into wine, you cannot use old or already stretched out wineskins and the reason being is that when the yeast begins to ferment the juice the byproducts of the reaction is that takes place is ethanol or drinking alcohol carbon dioxide and heat so as the juice continues to be turned into wine more alcohol is produced but so is co2 and heat which if there is no room for the skin to expand it will cause it to burst and the wine to be ruined therefore it was commonly understood that you could not use old wineskins because the skins were already stretched from the carbon dioxide and hardened to the point of being brittle from the heat. God desires to give us increase and bless us. He wants to stretch us, but before he can stretch, oh, before he can stretch us, we have to make sure that our wineskins are brand new. He wants to stretch your finances. He wants to stretch your faith. He wants to stretch your gifts. He wants to stretch your talents. But you got to be ready. Oh, he wants to stretch us out. Isaiah 1 and 22. Thy silver is become dross, thy wine mixed with water. Isaiah is prophesying about what was taking place in Israel in his time. The way that this can be translated, uh, that is translated in the King James Version is accurate, but it can be better understood in the original and is translated as such in many of the other English versions. Verse 22 reads, in the original, your taverns mix water with wine. Your taverns mix water with wine. The literal meaning behind these verses is that Israel has ca had caused their silver to become as dross, which is the term for the impurities that float to the top of the furnace when a metal like tin is heated and melted. They were impure. It looked like silver. And the taverns were adding water to the wine that they were selling to their patrons. This is exactly what they were talking about in the graffiti that they found in Pompeii. What they were doing was stretching their product to increase their profit at the expense of everyone who was buying it. The dross had the appearance of silver but was worthless. The wine was still red, but the water tainted the flavor and decreased the potency. Paul makes reference to these taverns in 2 Corinthians 2 and 17, where he states, For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God. A direct translation of the word corrupt is tavern. Tavern. 
It was such a widely understood practice that saying something was tavern would be commonly understood as something that was adulterated, corrupted, or stretched thin. Paul made sure to let everyone know that the word that they preached was not tavern. He was not preaching out of self-interest or petty gain. Rather, he was preaching under the mandate of God in an attempt to fulfill his call and debt unto God. Praise God. So what does it mean to us today? We have, a, we have a responsibility to preach the word of God in its entirety without fear, without favor. We have a mandate to preach the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. We're not interested in preaching a gospel that looks like a lion, acts like a lion, walks like a lion, roars like a lion. But when it's time for the lion to, to bite, it's got no teeth. Which is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 and 4, And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. We can't have the voice and the message and no power. It is paramount that as apostolics we maintain our Pentecostal roots, which is the power of the Spirit that God has been pouring out since the day of Pentecost. The last thing we need to do is sell ourselves short and, and let our wine get taverned. Jesus paid full price for our sins. The church pays full price with our lives as we present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service. We pay full price, and we deserve wine that's not watered down. Oh, clap your hands unto God. There ought to be something within us that after having received this great truth that we will fiercely and unashamedly defend it and if need be, fight to protect it. Hallelujah. Which is why Paul made it so clear on more than one occasion. Don't let this slip. Don't let this truth get away from you. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Hallelujah. It was a rhetorical question. We can't escape. Because we can't let these things go. We may be stretched out, but we are not stretched thin. Acts chapter number 1, verse number 8. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth that's us right now that's us right here the power we receive is a power that ferments on the inside it stretches and heats us up to be inspired dynamic and powerful witnesses unto God the power has never been for selfish purposes, but it has always been for God's purpose. It's always been for us to be saving as many people as we possibly can. 
He's looking for us to be his hands. He's looking for us to be his mouth. He's looking for us to be his eyes. He wants us to be his feet. And he wants us to have these feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And he wants us spreading seed wherever we go. Hallelujah. Praise God. The sole purpose of God saving you and saving me is for us to go and find someone who's lost and lead them to God. If this were not the case, we would have already been caught up with the Lord. But he left us here in order for us to go and find somebody. Hallelujah. There's no reason for us to be here if God did not have a purpose for us to help him reach the lost. And let me say this, the Lord is coming back for a church. The Bible says he's coming back as a thief in the night. No man knows the day nor the hour. In fact, the Bible says that in a moment and in a twinkling of an eye, and this nonsense that some people are buying into, that all of a sudden, that, that, that this has changed, and we can, we can guesstimate when God is coming back, because we don't see an antichrist, or we don't see the Jews in the temple sacrificing, or we haven't seen the desecration of the temple, is nonsense. God is all-powerful. God is almighty. God is well-able. He says, I'm coming back with a shout, with the voice of, of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. We've got a heaven that we're trying to make our home, praise God. Praise God. I feel the Holy Ghost right now. Oh, I feel the power of God already flowing. Hallelujah. Oh, thank you, Jesus. If we haven't received the new wine, the Holy Ghost, we need to get ourselves ready to receive it. We need to get our bodily vessels clean through repentance. And we need to get ready to receive the baptism of the Spirit. Praise God. You know, I didn't grow up in church. My grandfather studied, grandfather studied to be a priest. Very conservative Catholic man. My mom taught catechism. My dad was a Protestant. And he said that they're not going to a Catholic church. And so I was christened, and that was about the extent of it. I showed up to, well, we went to church by our own choice when my grandfather lived in Beverly Hills. Because when you go to the Catholic church in Beverly Hills, there's a lot of movie stars there. And so we got good sightseeing while we were gone. <laughs> but we didn't go to church often. I didn't understand, but I always had a desire to know God. I remember there being a Bible in our house that was my dad's from when he was young. And I remember looking at it thinking, God, I want to know what's in there. I want to know what's in there. Someday, I want to read that whole thing. Hallelujah. There had always been something on the inside that was drawing me. Hallelujah. And you got to understand, I grew up in a household. My grandfather, having studied to be a priest, went and had six kids. So you go figure how that worked out 
and he became a very successful man. This is my grandfather on my mom's side, CFO of Revlon, Saks Fifth Ave, president of the company that owns Speedo, famous footwear, very successful, not very Pentecostal. <laughs> my dad, we're from the Northeast. You're the difference between people from the Northeast. Since you're from New York, you know, you'll know what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm from Jersey. The difference between Californians and the Northeast is that Californians will smile in your face and then go talk about you. The Northeast will tell you about yourself and then go talk about you some more. <laughs> and so when they didn't like you, you knew all about it. Praise God. And so Pentecost didn't fit into this, this picture. But when I was in high school, I got introduced to a Baptist church, and I started going, and it was fine, but it wasn't really what I was, what I was really looking for. And when I went to college, my first semester there, I got invited to an on-campus ministry run by the Assemblies of God. And when we got through the service, I don't remember what was preached. It wasn't very good as far as I could remember. <laughs> but a prophetess, and I, I mean that wholeheartedly. I was talking to a pastor about this last week. A prophetess, Sister Caroline from Nigeria. And as far as I know, she was apostolic from the top of her head to the soles of her feet. She wore dresses. She didn't wear no makeup, no jewelry. She, she had uncut hair. She looked the part, acted the part, prayed the part. I remember that hours into the middle of the night, she would be there praying and praying. Her car was always at this on-campus ministry. She was the real deal. And she walked up to me after the service. I hadn't even met her before. And she said, brother, God wants to give you something. I said, great. I didn't know any better. I thought that was awesome. And she started praying with me, and she said, you need to repent of all your sins. I thought I already did that. I had gone down in the titles and been sprinkled, and then I went and went down in the titles and got submerged. And I thought, I, I don't know how many more times I'm going to have to repent. But, but she said, okay, I, I did it. I repented, and it wasn't two minutes later that God filled me with the baptism of the Holy Ghost, and I spoke in tongues for the very first time as the Spirit gave me the utterance. I'm telling you, it doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. Hallelujah. What language you speak. When God fills you, you're going to speak in another language. You know, my thoughts on speaking in tongues before this based on my upbringing, was that this only happened in like some backwoods churches in Appalachia. You know, I, <laughs> I thought that it only happened in places where it was also okay to marry your cousin. <laughs> and, and that maybe the tongue talking was because they didn't have enough teeth to really <laughs> block the tongue. But... <laughs> That's what I thought. I thought this is about as backwards as it gets. And here I am at a university. Trying to get an education. And God had different plans for me. And he filled me with the Holy Ghost and changed the course of my life. Not only this life, but my eternal life. 
Because there was desires that I had that I no longer had anymore. And there was desires I didn't have that all of a sudden I got. Oh, thank you, Jesus. And so I went back to this Baptist pastor and his wife. And we were in a service, and I couldn't help it. When I started lifting my hands, which I wasn't able to do before, and when I started clapping my hands, at which I wasn't able to do before, and I sure enough couldn't, couldn't clap on beat or sway to the beat and two-step, my wife can attest to it, but when I got the Holy Ghost and I started moving a little bit, all of a sudden I'd start speaking in tongues. And they told me, that's no good. You can't do that in public unless there be an interpreter. And I told them, I can't help it. There's nothing that, that I can do about this. And so I went back to college and I began to study it out for myself. And I locked myself in a library there in the university. And I'll say this, there's not a whole lot of religious texts at a university that's not, that's not a Christian university. But I found every Catholic encyclopedia. I found every text that I could possibly find that had to do with any kind of religion. And you know what I found? I found that when I started going through these books, that, that it had always been from the beginning that they spoke with other tongues. It had always been that when somebody received the Holy Ghost, they spoke in other tongues. And not only that, I found out that it wasn't until the Council of Nicaea that they began to change the baptismal formula and started saying you can baptize infants and you can sprinkle them and you can use titles. It had always been prior to that in Jesus' name by full immersion. And I thought, my God, what kind of church changes the word of God? Needless to say, I was a preacher at this church. My wife's dad and this pastor ordained me as a Baptist preacher. I didn't go back. You're not going to tell me a lie. You're not going to tell me a lie and expect me to get in line. And so I started studying more. And I began to look through the word of God. And I saw in Acts chapter number 2. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, and they were all in one place, in one accord, kind of like this, kind of like this. They were all in one accord, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven, and it filled all the place where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And I realized the Holy Ghost is the same today as it was 2,000 years ago. Nothing has changed about the way God moves in our lives. And when the people had traveled, who had traveled to Jerusalem, heard these people speaking in tongues, the Bible says that, that they began to marvel and some began to mock, saying these men are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, 
he started to begin to preach unto them. Hallelujah. And he said, let it be known to you that these men are not drunken as you suppose, seeing it's but the third hour of the day. Hallelujah. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And upon my servants and upon my handmaidens, I will pour out in those days of my spirit and they shall prophesy. Peter made it real clear that these people were not drunk in the traditional sense. But they were full of joy and peace that only could be given by God. They had received a new wine. It was not stretched thin. It was not watered down. The new wine is not like the wine of this world. Hallelujah. It won't leave you hungover. It won't cause you to lose your inhibitions. But it will cause you to live right. And it just might make you dance and shout. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Oh, are you thankful for the Holy Ghost this morning? Woo. And then I found Acts chapter number 8. Philip went and preached to the Samaritans, and they were baptized in Jesus' name. But they hadn't received the gift of the Holy Ghost. And I don't have time to get into it. But when Peter and John showed up, Peter had the keys to the kingdom. And he said, oh, I'm letting them in. He turned those keys. He laid his hands on them. And they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them the utterance. And then I went a little bit further. And I found in Acts chapter number 10, Cornelius, a man who was devout, he prayed and fasted often and gave alms. The Bible says that an angel came to him and told him to send for a man named Simon Peter, who was in Joppa, which is modern day Jaffa. And, and, and Cornelius was sitting in Caesarea. And when he sent men down there, the Bible says that Peter had already had a vision. And this vision let him know that God told him, do not call all unclean what I have called clean. So when Peter got to Cornelius's house in Caesarea, he began to preach the word of God unto them. And the Bible says, while Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all of them which heard the word. Let me say this right now. While you're hearing this preaching, God can fill you with the Spirit. God can fall on you. God can fill you with the Holy Ghost. The Jews that had come with Peter were astonished because people of Jewish blood, of, of, of pe people who were not of Jewish blood, had never received the Holy Ghost before. Hallelujah. And so, for the very first time, these Jews saw Gentiles receiving the baptism of the Spirit. And they knew that they had received it, for they heard them speak in tongues and magnify God. And Peter said, Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized? as well as we hallelujah and he baptized them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of their sins hallelujah and then I went just a little bit further hallelujah Acts chapter 19 Paul went to Ephesus and he found the same disciples hallelujah that came to Jesus and Jesus
Jesus told them, you're going to have to put some wine in new bottles. He found these disciples of John, and he asked them, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said, we haven't even heard of a Holy Ghost. And Paul asked them, how were you baptized? They said, under John's baptism. And Paul told them that John baptized under repentance. But, but that you should believe on the one that was to come after Hallelujah, which was Jesus. Then Paul baptized them in Jesus' name. And the Bible says, when Paul laid hands on them, they were filled with the Holy Ghost. And they spake in tongues and prophesied. Hallelujah. Every single time it was recorded. Every single time. My quiver was full. I never did get a chance to argue with that pastor, but I sure wanted to. And it was probably, it was probably God's will. But my quiver was full, and I realized this truth, this truth, it's got no holes in it. It's, it's seamless. It's perfect. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Musicians, you can come. I close with this. In John chapter number 2, Jesus performs his first miracle in his earthly ministry. He and his family and his disciples were all at a wedding. And the Bible says that they ran out of wine. And Mary, Jesus' mother, saw on the spot. And Jesus told the servants to fill six water pots of full of water. And when they had finished filling them, he told them to serve it to the governor of the feast. Go give it to the guy who's running the show. And when the governor had tasted it, he called the groom over and told him that normally every man saves the best wine. Excuse me, every man serves the best wine at the beginning of the feast. And then once everybody has had their fill, then they begin to serve the weaker wine. Praise God. I've come to preach to you today, if you'd stand with me, that Jesus was stretched out, but he's never been stretched thin. We are going to be stretched out but we won't be stretched thin as long as we have the new wine flowing within us. There's still enough new wine to go around. The Holy Ghost has never lost any power. If anything, it's only gained power. God, God is saving the best for last. The church is not going down, but it's going up. The best days of the church is not behind, but they're before us. The greatest outpouring of the Holy Ghost is yet to come. The greatest days of this church are yet to come. Hallelujah. The latter rain is going to be greater than that of the former. Praise God. Praise God. And I want to say this. If you've not received the Holy Ghost, God wants to help you. God wants to heal you. God wants to deliver you of depression, anxiety, worry, poverty. He wants to help you today. But you got to get this vessel cleaned up with repentance. And you got to be ready to receive the baptism of the Spirit. Oh, why don't we lift our hands and let's love the Lord here today. Hallelujah. Let's worship Him for the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.